Welcome to episode 20 of the Swampflex podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Cece Chapman. This is the final episode of the year. We are sort of scrambling to catch up with a bunch of stuff before we do our best of the year list next episode. Uh, we're also sort of reeling from a, another recent string of celebrity deaths. In the past couple days, we've lost some really important people, uh, George Michael and Carrie Fisher. So maybe somewhat appropriately, we're continuing this sort of line of end of the world discussion as this year just proves to be more and more rough every few weeks. Um, maybe even by the time we release this episode, something awful will have happened we don't even know about yet. Oh, I didn't even get a chance to tell you, but uh, Richard Adams, the author of Watership Down, also passed away. Jesus Christ. <laughs> he was 98, though. So oh, okay. Not, not quite as tragic as the as, two younger celebrities that just left us. So this episode is going to be sort of apocalypse-themed, because it just seemed like a good way to cap off the end of the year. Before we get into that, last time we talked, we had only seen one movie in the theater in the interim between the two episodes. This time, since we are scrambling to catch up a little bit, I'm just going to read off a quick rapid-fire list of everything we've seen in the past two weeks. The Love Witch, Rogue One, La La Land, Office Christmas Party, Manchester by the Sea, Nocturnal Animals, Jackie... I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, Evolution, Batman Return of the Cape Crusader, and Hurricane Bianca. All 26 releases, all quite excellent. Well, most. Some of them are kind of like silly and trivial, but it's just like an overload of information at this point. So I guess, is there anything in that list of stuff we've seen recently that sort of jumps out to you as like worth championing? I mean, obviously The Love Witch. It is an amazing film made by a virtuoso uh, writer, director, costumer, prop designer, set designer, (laughs) film editor. uh, What's her name? Amanda Biller? Is that right? I believe so. Maybe Anna Biller? Anna Biller, I think is right. Yeah, she's only got a couple films under her belt. Uh, This other one she just made was called Viva, and she starred in that one as well. But yeah, Love Witch is definitely like a sort of intensive project where she like hand built a lot of the props and everything is just sort of controlled by one mind it's pretty amazing stuff and it's a uh, throwback to like erotic horror yeah like yeah definitely you can see like visually some of the same level of eroticism from like hammer horror films and the lurid color scheme but the whole thing is this kind of feminist love letter to that like era of cinema despite it's like very like lurid sexual kind of over-the-top styles uh it is also a story about like a female serial killer and she's not killing people because out of malice or anything she's killing them because she loves them too much (laughs) Uh. yeah she's sort of like pushed into like murderous mania by all these like pressures to like be the perfect woman yeah kind of like drives her to like this murderous insanity so yeah it's kind of crazy for a movie to be this sort of like bad on purpose in a way intentionally campy and then to have such a ridiculous like political bite to it it was really surprising i had a lot of fun watching that movie i guess the other smaller one we saw in here that was of interest was evolution Mm -hmm. from a french director this one is a little more obscure it's like this island of women raising these boys and we're not sure for what purpose it's very mysterious uh and it turns into this sort of supernatural mystery that involves starfish and strange operations that we learn slightly more about as the film goes along but it leaves you with a lot more questions than answers it's a very quiet kind of horror yes very long shots uh kind of slow but lingering very creepy honestly uh but yeah if you're looking for like jump scares and you know that kind of thing it's not that's yeah. not a horror movie for you <laughs> but if the thought of like reaching adolescence is really scary for you if you yourself had a lot of like weird feelings about like hitting puberty then you know maybe this is a good film for you 
<laughs> and it's kind of funny, like just like with the Love Witch, it's like a female director mm-hmm. who obviously took a lot of time to meticulously craft the images that you see on the screen. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like a very like handmade, like small scale film, but it could not be more different as far as like trying to entertain you. Like, yeah, it's almost like a stubborn, deliberately like unentertaining film in some ways. And it's more like pushing for this, like, I don't know, Bunuel, like, surrealism kind of thing, where you're not really supposed to interpret what the images mean. They just sort of, like, evoke a dread in you. Yeah, I would say, yeah. It's very impressionistic, but impressionistically terrible and horrific. <laughs> Ooh. Anything else from this list you want to point out? I mean, it's a lot of movies. I mean, La La Land was great. Everyone's <laughs> talking about it. Uh, Jackie was horrifying as well and beautiful and great and everyone's already talking about it uh i really liked the uh batman robin kate crusader movie it was really fun yeah that one's like a a throwback to like 60s batman the adam west uh originally voice cast yeah uh lots of puns and alliteration oh my god and really obvious gay subtext surprisingly like Uh, i didn't i thought it was for kids so i was like oh we can watch it in the morning when we eat breakfast saturday morning cartoon but we ended up watching in the evening which was much more appropriate I don't know. It was just, it was a lot more adult than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, we ended up pairing it with the uh, drag queen comedy Hurricane Bianca, which is Bianca Del Rio's like, feature film debut where she's the star of the show. And it actually ended up working pretty well where they're both campy and like surprisingly gay together. But yeah, in Batman, they keep making making these references to like Bruce Wayne and the boy Wonder sneaking off at night alone together for like late night fishing trips. And they're obviously hiding the fact that they're Batman and Robin, but... Um, His aunt, Batman's aunt, doesn't know how to interpret it. So she's just like, oh, y'all are dating. <laughs> obviously. Yeah, it's really funny and very wink-wink in an uh, over-the-top way. It's not at all a subtle film, but no. it's very ridiculous. Hey, it's my kind of Batman. I, th- I thought about covers the interesting stuff that's not uh, being like hammered to death right now. But uh, before... We sort of wrap up the year and talk about all our favorite things that we saw, where we probably are going to repeat a lot of people's favorite oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah, we're going to talk about this list <laughs> of the stuff we've seen in the past two weeks again. There's no point in talking about it now. We'll do that next podcast. <laughs> and uh, before, so before we get into that, um, some sort of end of the world uh, stuff to deal with before we deal with the end of the year. We are going to be talking about two films from 1998 that both deal with these celestial bodies that need to be exploded before they collide with Earth. One is a tender sort of all-encompassing character drama in which NASA astronauts sacrifice themselves to save the world in a sort of noble way. And the other is a ridiculous... Michael Bay movie. (laughs) ...meathead fest where the asteroid should be destroyed... Um, like a like a villain, so that more Aerosmith songs can be made room for on the soundtrack, uh, and the the folks at NASA are not the saviors of the day. They're sort of these like pansy nerds that need to be swept aside so that real American men can can save the day. Um, <laughs> so that's gonna be kind of a funny compare and contrast for uh, two films from 1998. Um, before we get into that, another film about the end of the world uh, in our regular recommendation segment, movie of the minute, and all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. Gorman, six points, the world's about to end. Six points coming up. Keep the change. You got about ten minutes to spend it. It's three points each at lunchtime. We got two minutes. Drink up, drink up, drink up. People of Earth, 
round of drinks for everyone on me. Oh, Do you really think the world's going around? Yes. Shouldn't we lie down or put paper bag over heads or something? Oh, if you'd like. Will it help? Not at all. And now for our Movie of the Minute segment. This is where Cece and I bounce back and forth recommending films to each other that we'd never seen before. Um, Cece, what did you make me watch this time? Uh, I made Brandon watch the 2005 adaptation of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, the uh, Douglas Adams sort of dry British wit, uh, irreverent sci-fi comedy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Due to a bureaucratic mistake, Earth uh, is blown up in order to make way for a bypass. Uh, and this is introduced to us by Martin Freeman's character, uh, who plays the main protagonist, trying to prevent his house from being blown up in order to make way for a human highway bypass. This room already feels so dry right now. <laughs> yeah, the humor in here is very British. It works very well on the page. Like, I loved this book in high school. What happens after the, uh, the earth blows up? Uh, well, his character, Arthur, is um, picked up by his, his current friend... Uh, who, unbeknownst to him, is actually an alien, uh, played by Most Def. Who is Most Def an alien? Yeah. <laughs> in real life. In real life. Uh, Ford Prefect, though. <laughs> How he did not realize his friend was an alien with a name like a Ford Prefect. Um, which is a British car. I don't think we have prefects here. I think that is a British thing. But he thought that cars were the dominant life form on Earth, so... He tried to shake hands with one, and then... That's how... Yeah, that's how they met. Arthur saves his life. Yeah, he uh, runs out in traffic to try and, like, greet a car, like, names himself after one. Yeah. Why (laughs) why he didn't figure this out? Anyways, they put their thumbs up in the air and get picked up by a ship. The ship is filled with these sort of space alien bureaucrats. Yeah, Vorgons. Terrible at poetry. Apparently the poetry will kill you (laughs) if you, uh, if you listen to it for long enough. And they, but, um, they are the ones that signed the contract to build the bypass that yeah, destroyed Earth. Yeah, But thankfully, since Arthur is a very dull British person, he actually liked their poetry. <laughs> um, the other person, Ford Prefect, is writhing in pain. He's like, oh, actually, you know, I, I really like the way you described that one thing. And, you know, like, got a little dry here, but... Yeah, he was flattering them a little bit, a but little bit. it didn't hurt him the same way it hurt Ford. No, no, not at all. Uh, and then, you know, from there they bounce to a, to a different ship, the Heart of Gold, uh, which is kind of where the action really starts to take place. They run into the president of the universe, uh, Zaphod Bezelbox. Uh, and that's Sam Rockwell? Sam Rockwell, who is always great in space roles. I don't know what it is, but I just he's just good at it. He's yeah, this good is at playing aliens. more or less his character from Gentleman Broncos, yeah. or one of the two characters he plays in that movie. This is like the hyper masculine version of him. He's like a bro. Not a bro. I don't want to like conjure up backwards baseball caps and like neon <laughs> tank tops. More like he's a man's man, a grizzly man, a Marlboro man kind yeah. of a thing, but also like really goofy at the same time. He's 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 a womanizer. Yeah, he's a womanizer. You know, he's got a lot of chest hair. Gold chains. Doesn't that kind really of thing. think very much. He just sort Ooh. of like goes with the flow. No, yeah. <laughs> which makes him perfect president material. Arthur, in a weird coincidence, because this movie is full of weird coincidences, runs into his manic pixie dream girl, played by manic pixie dream girl herself, Zoe Deschanel, <laughs> <laughs> who snubbed him at a party because he was so boring to go off with a space alien. Obviously, right? Um, anyone would. Anyone would. <laughs> And, you know, from there, their adventures begin. They have to, you know, see what they can do about restoring Earth. They have to figure out what the meaning of life is. And uh, all that all sort of culminates in Douglas Adams' fashion to 
sort of implicate that there was never anything really worth saving in the first place. Like, the universe is just this frivolous thing that can be reset and... Yeah, uh, human souls don't exist, according to uh, Douglas Adams. <laughs> we can remake the Earth from scratch uh, with all the same people on it, and it'll be exactly the same, put it back in the same spot, and nothing's really changed. Yeah, what struck me about that is that it basically is the same premise as the book, and like all the sort of plot points you would hit in keeping the book's shape, uh, but there's like so much stuff missing within that shell. Yeah, yeah, no, they do hit all the points, but... The book felt so dense. Yeah. The book is hundreds of pages long. Like, it reads really fast, but, like, there's always something going on, and I felt like there were slow parts in the movie sometimes. Yeah, that's true. I I think the problem is that they chase, like, an action-adventure sort of aesthetic, where in the book there's just so many tangents where, like, you'll just hear about an alien race for, like, a few Yeah, or, like, uh, the person who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is a guidebook to tell you how to hitchhike around the galaxy, obviously. But, like, they, they go on a tangent about his divorce proceedings and about the publishing office that originally mm-hmm. published the book and, like, why they publish it the way they do and, like, how previous editions were different. And they do a little bit of that in the movie. It's, like, uh, narrated by Stephen Fry. They do a couple, like, this is what this alien race looks like and it's done in sort of animated fashion. But um, the other adaptation I've seen of this was an early 80s thing from the BBC that was like so much longer than this movie. Yeah, this is a normal two hour movie. Yeah. 90 minutes maybe. The BBC one was like a miniseries. It still only covered the first book in the series. There's like four or five of these. And it just took so much longer because they actually went on each tangent. And instead of uh, animating stuff the way this film does and it's like 2D computer animation, it's very like 80s like Tron looking. Like it's got like a lot of grids and like neon lights and stuff like that. That kind of graphics. I, I think that one might capture the sort of British wit of the series a lot more. But uh, I was very surprised by how well this movie visualizes certain characters and, like, aspects of the book. Yeah, like, Zaphod Bezelbox, however you pronounce his name. Uh, (laughs) It's very hard saying that one. The fact that he has two heads in the movie, they found a really clever way to do that without, you know, having, like, a Y-shape, like, two heads next to each other on the same set of shoulders which was, like, a problem that the BBC movie did not solve very well. Yeah, in the BBC miniseries, Zaphod just has, like, a second head attached to his shoulder, and it's just a mannequin head. There's no, like, special effect to it. They just, like, very literally gave him a second head that doesn't do anything. And it's kind of horrifying if you, like, stare at its dead eyes a little too long. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't want to look at that. So the fact that they did, like, come up with a much more clever way to have somebody have two heads. (laughs) Do Do you remember the dolls when we were younger that, like... The chest opened a little, and you could flip the head around and be a different oh, character. Yeah, totally. That's kind of the design they used. Wow, I haven't thought about that in so long. Yeah, it was a really <laughs> cool. I don't remember what those things were called, but I remember there was like dolls that like. Yeah, it's like spring loaded almost. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Yeah, that's what it is. Like uh, his chin lifts, and the second head is under his usual head, and that's kind of like yeah. his id. Like yeah. it's all his like worst impulses come out and start barking at you. Yeah. Yeah, and his other head just kind of like flaps back. They uh they they have to drop that point for a while though because they sort of leave one of his heads as a uh, collateral with John Malkovich's sneezing church so they can go seek out this like number forty two what does it mean what does the world mean a lot of tangents in this film <laughs> yeah so many tangents did they actually get the head back by then I I, I didn't even notice. I don't remember the end uh, even dealing with the head because the last everything s- happened so quickly at the very end of it the last scene of the movie is them saving themselves on the second version of Earth. Like yeah. They're bringing the world back to life uh, as it is, 
and saving the day basically means saving their own lives in this new planet. Um, I don't think there's any like journey back to John Malkovich. I do believe they they had set this up for a second movie because at the end of the movie, Trillian, the manic pixie dream girl, is like, "Oh, I'm hungry," and then they're like, "Oh, well, let's go to the restaurant at the end of the world." Yeah, at the end of and, the universe. And yeah. so yeah, then they go to go get lunch. And I think that was supposed to set it up for the next installment, but due to the fact this film was a bit of a flop. Yeah, and financially and critically, like, not everyone hated it. It had kind of a mixed reviews, but I don't think anybody would list this as, like, one of their favorite movies of 2005 or anything like that. No. And for a book with such, like, a devoted fan base, it's kind of weird how this movie isn't really championed by anybody. It just sort of, like, exists. Yeah. Um, I've never felt pressured into watching it from people. Like, no one's ever, like, said you have to watch this before. The people I know who really love the book don't particularly care for the movie. I don't think they hate it, but they just don't particularly care for it. And that, that might have something to do with how it, it is, like, an action-adventure instead of, like... Yeah, they tried to shoehorn a very long, dry British book. A very funny, dry British book into a more traditional plot structure. So yeah. they had to, like, create some MacGuffins, like... Things that they were doing in the book, but like suddenly they take on this new importance within this like movie-fied plot. Yeah, and the book's whole point is that nothing matters. Like no. everything is treated with the same irreverence. Yeah, what's the meaning of life? What is the answer to everything? Forty-two. Yeah. Take, take from that what you will. Like. And that has the same sort of uh, cultural significance as um, Room Two Twenty Seven and. Uh, the Shining. You'll yeah. see 42 pop up in movies all the time. This past summer in The Shallows, the uh, buoy that saves Blake Lively from the shark for a large portion of the film is buoy number 42. Yeah. Um, well, it was the meaning of life, not dying. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good point, too. Yeah, I think that's just like a fun production design thing for yeah. people, for nerds to geek out on. I, I think selling this, I think it sells this movie a little short to say it gets nothing right, though. You know, visually, it gets a lot of stuff right. It's great. I, I don't agree with all the casting choices. Yeah, uh, I don't like looking at Zoe Deschanel. She just she's, bothers me. She's just, <laughs> I mean, one, she was already out of Arthur Dent's league, like, by, like, miles and miles, like, to, like, make her Zoe Deschanel, like, I don't know. It just didn't <laughs> quite work. Yeah. And then, I don't know, Alan Rickman as Marvin the Depressed Robot is probably one of the best casting decisions ever yeah no he's perfect like as the voice of he was actually played by warwick davies which i feel like he was probably overqualified to just be in the suit i uh, hope they didn't promise poor warwick that he would get the voice of the character as well yeah i feel like that would be the only way like somebody of his like standing yeah he's like, a recognizable face like, yeah he's a really good actor too like, <laughs> yeah he's, and he's got good comedic timing but why why they would like why he would decide to be like oh well i'll just play marvin in the suit <laughs> and not voice him as well like well, hopefully it was know. a good paycheck at least yeah he uh, also might have yeah just been looking for money and like was like well this is an easy one i really like sam rockwell as zaphod Z sam rockwell is a perfect zaphod i wouldn't uh martin freeman is 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 a uh, arthur wasn't bad i would have rather it been simon Pegg. Yeah, this feels like if it were an Edgar Wright movie, it would have been so perfectly calibrated. Perfect. I'm not sure who Nick Frost would play in that scenario. I wouldn't want to lose Most Def, but... Um. No, Most Def <laughs> would have been great. Like, yeah. Most Def was great, like, playing, like, Ford. Because he's just, like, so weird. Yeah, I feel like uh, Nick Frost would have to play, like, one of the other alien bureaucrats or something. Yeah. Like, he would have to pop up somewhere, but, like... 
Maybe uh, in the sneezing church. Yeah, he could have been one of the people in the sneezing church. I don't know. <laughs> but this would have been pretty early in Simon, uh, I'm sorry, in Edgar Wright's career to uh, land such a big movie. Yeah, this was Shaun in... of the Dead came out only the year before this yeah. came out. Yeah, and this was in development hell for like 15 years. Douglas Adams used to joke about how the movie wasn't ever going to come out, and that they were just like basically like teasing him with the idea that this Did he produced. live to see this come out? That is a good question. I forget when he died. But besides the casting, I, I seriously do think the aliens, especially the space bureaucrats, are really well realized on the screen. I'm not sure that that's the kind of stuff you would look for when you're like, are a fan of that book. What did he die before the movie? I came looked out? it up. He died in 2001. The movie came out in 2005. <laughs> he didn't even make it to see it. No, that's really sad. That's so sad. But, um, yeah, like the space bureaucrats are really well realized. Mm-hmm. Um, the giant, uh, computer that comes up with the number 42. Who's voiced by Helen Mirren. Yeah. Also overqualified. <laughs> also overqualified, but you know, she's British, so she got a good chuckle out of it. At a certain point, we kind of felt like this was trying to shoehorn in every actor from uh, Love Actually. Yeah. No, like <laughs> a lot of people from Love Actually. Like Olivia, I've forgotten her name. The one who plays Marceline the Vampire Queen on Avenger Time didn't make it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but everyone else pretty much did. Pretty much did. Which isn't really fair, because like, I feel like all of Britain is in love, actually. I'm pretty sure <laughs> the majority of British people are in love, actually. But uh, yeah, the, the computer that calculates the meaning of life looked very like Dave McKean to me, the guy who does the covers for Neil Gaiman books. Mm-hmm. Uh, that had a really cool look to it that I never would have visualized in my mind in the same way. They also go for practical effects, which is always nice. Uh, especially the bureaucrats are these like nasty jowly very ugly costumes. aliens yeah. yeah and then you have like the talking mice are very um everybody loves the talking mice yeah one of which was voiced by the director that's cool I didn't know <laughs> that was kind of funny yeah but yeah I, I, I appreciated a lot of aspects of the movie even if it wasn't like a perfect vehicle yeah and yeah. in some ways it's kind of a impossible book to adapt into a a, a 90 minute movie that everyone's gonna go, want to go watch yeah i feel like you could do it as maybe a trilogy the first book could be a trilogy of movies <laughs> like each book could be its own trilogy but then also you know you're gonna have really weird pacing issues because the plot itself is only a 90 minute plot but all the tangents take up their own like sections yeah. like editing wise i just don't see how it can be done i don't know i think an animated miniseries would pretty much solve all the problems Ugh, i don't want to watch it animated you don't watch this animated? No. You uh, you and I differ on the uh, the the cover of the book, which is like the Earth sort of making. That's a not goofy fair. Face. I was a small child. Okay. I did not like it as a small child. <laughs> but that that's sort of like uh, a reverent cover to the book. I think. Like, I didn't think it was proper. Lends itself to. I didn't to like it. It looked like stoner art to me, and I was very against stoners as a four year old. Thought they were a useless <laughs> lot of people. None of them ever made me breakfast. That might be a good policy to hold on to, actually. <laughs> But yeah, I, th- I think that book cover sort of hints at like how this movie could be animated in a fun way. Anything else you want to add? No, I uh, I hope this at least sets the stage to try it again, maybe in uh, another ten years when we've run out of more ideas in Hollywood. Uh... It's not too late to get Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg on board. I think they would enjoy yeah. making this film. And I don't think Simon Pegg's too old because like that's kind of the beauty of Arthur Dent is he's like a middle-aged loser. Like, eh. 
If anything, he might be too funny to be Arthur Dent because Arthur Dent's supposed to be kind of like milk toast. He can play milk toast if he wants. Oh, that's to. true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of not that different from Arthur uh, from the Tick either. It's kind of the same like yeah. milk toast character gets like swept up in a much more interesting plot than he deserves. Here's to the Arthurs of the world, <laughs> which I identify with more and more on a daily basis as I get older. And here is the anomaly at 1700. Enough with this anomaly horseshit. What is this thing? It's an asteroid, sir. How big are we talking? Sir, our best estimate is 97.6 billion. It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. Yes, sir. Dan, we didn't see this thing coming. Well, our object collision budget's a million dollars. That allows us to track about 3% of the sky. Is this going to hit us? We're efforting that as we speak, sir. What kind of damage are we? Damage? Total, sir. It's what we call a global killer. The end of mankind. Doesn't matter where it hits. Nothing would survive, not even bacteria. My God. What do we do? So as a disastrous 2016 is coming to a close, it's tempting to look at the world as if it's ending. Uh, there's a bunch of political and sort of natural things going on where we're looking around and it seems as if an apocalypse is impending. I think we'll start to see that in movies in the next few years as we're sort of processing the different ways the world seems to be crumbling around us through our art and our entertainment. Um, but that's not anything new, really. If you look back to 2012, there were a bunch of sort of black comedies about the end of the world, sort of coinciding with the end of the Mayan calendar. You had uh, This is the End, and Edgar Wright's, uh, I think it's called The End of the World, and then there's the Seeking a Friend for the End of the World with Steve Carell in it. And before that, even, if you look all the way back to the Y2K scare in the late 90s, there's a bunch of movies that sort of fall in line with that paranoia as well. That year, there were two end-of-the-world films that sort of used the same mechanism for the world's uh, doomsday scenario. It was an impending asteroid uh, on a collision course with Earth that, we, that could not be stopped. So in both films, we send out a force of astronauts to land on this asteroid and blow it up with nuclear bombs. And these two films are, of course, uh, Deep Impact, directed by the same woman, Mimi Leader, who did Pay It Forward, and Armageddon by Michael Bay. Uh, if you look at Deep Impact, it has this sort of humanist bent to it, where the whole movie is about processing grief and empathy, and it spreads its story out across all these different characters and tries to encapsulate like an entire nation's response to what is like a shared Earth and crisis scenario. And then if you look to Armageddon, Michael Bay's film, it is this grotesque, explosion-heavy fantasy piece wherein these traditionally masculine, saves-the-day heroes uh, take it upon themselves to blow up this, this Earth killer using their experience with violent explosions in true Michael Bay fashion to just sort of kick its ass as if it were an enemy. And then, if you look at these two films together, what you have is that balance on one side where Deep Impact is this humanist drama, but it's kind of dull and not very exciting. And then you have the Michael Bay film, which is very dynamic and interestingly shot, but has this cruel, sort of black, conservative soul that is just mean-spirited and ugly, but also entertaining to watch. So I guess I have to ask Cece, 
looking at these two films together, did you enjoy watching Armageddon more so than Deep Impact because it is a, an exciting film? Or are they both just sort of terrible in their own way? <laughs> well, before I get to that, I do wanted to make one quick note. Actually, they did not both involve an asteroid. Deep Impact was actually a comet, which is a uh, frozen ball uh, of ice, not necessarily water ice. It could be, it could be a gaseous ice, like methane or ammonia. It's like a ball of like rocks and ice and other things like that. Um, so that actually made it very easy to drill into uh, for Deep Impact, whereas in Armageddon, they did have a true asteroid, which is usually made of rock or iron. But yeah, I just wanted to, to point out that there was two slight differences, uh, which also impacted the plot and like how easy it was for them to actually drill into it in order to stuff it full of explosives. Yeah, Armageddon's a much longer picture, and a lot of that feels like in that third act when they're on the asteroid, trying to drill into it, it keeps breaking their sort of futuristic drill heads. Yeah, uh, because it is like pure iron. Yeah. So hard. Which is another sort of encapsulation of why these movies are so different. Of course, Armageddon would have the much bigger object yeah, that's the made size of much. Of Texas versus the size of New York, and you know, Texas crushes New York. And it's made of like a much stronger steel, yeah, <laughs> as opposed to ice. Yeah. But how do you, how do you feel like these mo- two movies work together? Oh, I actually, you know, I mean, I I had bits where I enjoyed both of them. I would say that I definitely like the character development a lot more in Deep Impact. There were a lot of weird, extraneous like plot details that I didn't need at the very beginning of the film. There is this, like, senator who retires because of an affair, and then it turns out that all of that's just a smokescreen, and there is no affair, and the world's just ending, and that's why he retired. So that part is James Cromwell from Babe? Yeah, from Babe. Uh, And he's being investigated. That'll do, pig, you know? (laughs) Yeah, the sweetest farmer in cinema history. And then he's being investigated by Taylor Leone, who sort of, like, stumbles in backwards into this big government cover-up. But like you're saying, that's probably the first ten minutes of the movie. It feels like it's so long, though. And we already know what's going to happen. It's called Deep Impact. Yeah. Not like presidents, senators, secrets, <laughs> secret mistresses. It's not. It's not that movie. I know. I know. I'm not watching that movie. So just like, when are we getting to the the impending doom, guys? Hurry it up! I want. I want the end to come soon, please. And the confusion there is she mishears a woman's name, which is Ellie, but apparently that's like an acronym for Extinction Extinction Level Level Event. Event. And that would have been an interesting film, maybe, if it was like a mystery called Ellie, Yeah. where you realize at the end that the government's been covering up this... Extinction Level Event that's like impending very soon. Yeah, that would be a really fun one to watch. But... Tay Leone's reporter is just one part of this like larger quilt. Yeah, no, and then you know there's my my husband uh, Elijah Wood uh, <laughs> and Lily Sobieski, who I always really admired. Uh, who was severely mistreated in The Wicker Man was the last movie oh, we saw. Oh yeah, no, she gets punched <laughs> and thrown, and yeah, no, maybe that's why she decided to retire from acting. She's like, I'm not I'm not getting punched in the face by Nick Cage ever again. So <laughs> it's the only way I can guarantee that won't happen. And then you have Morgan Freeman as the president. He's a great president. I would yeah. say if I had to compare the two presidents in these movies, uh, Deep Impact's a better movie because Morgan Freeman's the president, <laughs> whereas in Armageddon it's just some white guy. Yeah, we don't know who that guy is. I don't know who that guy is. He's just a white guy. But uh, Morgan Freeman is pretty just convincing as a commanding presence. Like He can play God and the president pretty Oh yeah. Pretty easily. It's like a casual role for and, him. And like people aren't getting super pissed at him the <laughs> fact that he knew that there was a comet headed towards Earth for like a couple years. 
And they just decided not to tell anyone. But I guess my problem with the movie is that it doesn't really... Nothing's really a big deal. Yeah. It's... There's like a there's like a sense of grief because everyone sort of accepted that the world's going to end and you do see people sort of seeking higher ground or and sometimes yeah, like even fighting, going underground fighting to get themselves like into like underground shelters that the government has made uh, that kind of thing like using any means necessary to like weasel their way in But other than that survival thing do you think the movie really has like an ethos or any kind of like point it's trying to make or overall theme it's just that humanity is truly noble and if we all work together you know and if we're willing to sacrifice ourselves we can we can like help humanity as a whole and that comes through in robert duvall's character who is uh the head of the spaceship crew he's like he's an he's an old you know uh, according to the younger astronauts washed up astronaut who like was the last person to ever set foot on the moon his career should be over at this point he's way too old to be flying but he ends, he ends up becoming the sort of like paternalistic captain of the ship and uh, basically convinces the rest of his crew that they should sacrifice themselves for the greater good. Yeah, no, let's let's all commit suicide uh, by blowing up this, this asteroid or comet. Uh, comet. Sorry, comet. Together as yeah. a team. But like besides that, there's really no connection to the rest of the film. Yeah, it is. It, uh, one thing I like about it is that there is a very wide cast of characters across different like stages of life there's like young teenagers just falling in love there's older characters at the end of their life there's the astronauts who are going up into space and they all have really interesting stories and backstories but also as a result like it does become a lot more scattered because in armageddon we really only have the astronauts slash oil rig drillers and they're really the only ones we focus on we focus on a little on like some of the like secondary characters and like some of their plot lines but they're by and large not the focus we need these dudes they self-describe um as two different things in the film one is they call themselves roughnecks yeah roughnecks. Uh, they're basically just like you said oil drill oil rig workers daddies. yeah uh, and then they also describe themselves at one point as a bunch of daddies because they're all collectively raising Liv tyler who like grew up on the rigs and is now kind of their pr person for foreign investors which they are a bunch of daddies. But yeah, it's like American hero worship. Like these like tough dudes are going to go in and save the day and the rest of the world literally like sits on its hands and watches. Wait, yeah, like which is funny cuz there's all these other pla- like all these other countries on this planet and none of them like have a plan to like blow up this asteroid. Like <laughs> no one. Like we we cooperate a little bit with Russia because they have their own separate space station. Not the International Space Station, but just the Russian Space Station, where we're going to go pick up our fuel. But that is run by Peter Stamari. He's a character actor you would recognize if you saw him. He is basically drunk and incompetent. Yeah. Jeopardizes the entire mission. He has, like, space madness, because he's been up on the space station by himself for, like, like years. No months, but still. And that's how, like, Michael Bay characterizes any country that's not America. You have these, like smiling Chinese businessmen who who blissfully are unaware that Bruce Willis and his daughter are in the middle of an argument as they're talking to them because she keeps turning back to them and smiling at them and saying something in Chinese and like, oh, ho, ho, everything's fine. Even when like, the rig's blowing up around them, they're like, oh, everything's fine. And they keep giving uh, Bruce Willis the thumbs up as if he's like a super cool dude just because they love him because who wouldn't, you know? He's the American Oh, badass. you're a cowboy, yes. Yeah. So in Paris, which eventually does blow up just yep, for our all, entertainment. all of it. We see the whole thing from the, the perspective of the Notre Dame Cathedral and then we watch it blow up. But b- before we uh, take pleasure in, in Paris's demise, we basically just see 
cafe society bullshit. Yeah, like, yeah, it's literally like when they show like the reactions of the rest of the world, it's like American family on a farm with a 1940s pickup truck. Gay Parisians hanging out at a cafe and literally eating baguettes and drinking coffee. Then another American doing another American thing. And then, like, some Italians. Yeah, some mosques. A bunch of people packed into a mosque. Yeah, people Uh, just praying for for John McClane to save the day. They also had a bunch of Hindus who were praying at the Taj Mahal, which is a a Muslim monument. So it was very confusing. Not exactly uh, correct. (laughs) But... If you, like, compare this to, like, what we saw with Shin Godzilla earlier this year, where, like, that is, like, a collective of people coming together to save the world, this is, like, the more traditional, like, American, um, these, like, cowboys. We gotta pull up our American pants and kick (laughs) some American ass. Uh, literally, in the case of Owen Wilson, is a cowboy in the film. He is a literal cowboy. (laughs) And he's part of the screw to, like, blow up But he's also in space, so that makes him a space cowboy. Whoa. (laughs) Wow. 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 So yeah, I don't know. Uh, ooh, which one did I like more? I would probably rewatch Armageddon again, despite its disgusting, homophobic, racist, <laughs> black, black, misogynist heart. Pedophile humor. Oh yeah, constantly. Okay, so the, the cast of astronauts was way more interesting as human beings uh, in Armageddon. They each had their own personality and backstory, where we didn't really get a lot of that with the astronauts who were just kind of regarded as a group in Deep Impact. Mm-hmm. But one of the, like, character traits was every time they turned to Steve Buscemi, he's like, I didn't know how old she was. <laughs> eh, I'm a pedophile. It was just like, what? Please. Please stop saying that Steve Buscemi's a pedophile, like, poor, constantly. Poor Steve Buscemi put in his, like, years in, like, indie movies, and he finally gets his, like, big breaks in these two late 90s action flicks. There's this one in Con Air. And because he's a weird-looking goober in both films, they make him a, a pedophile. In both of them. He has to be a pedophile. <laughs> Why? Poor Steve Buscemi. I'm guessing he's not a pedophile. I have no proof that he's not, I guess. But just like, what a bummer. You keep getting handed these scripts, and you're like, oh, I play a, a, a pedophile. Okay. Uh, guess I'm going to take the money. And w- when we say that this is like a conservative fantasy, like if you, if you just consider the first ten minutes of the film, you see Bruce Willis... Your hero, ostensibly, is introduced by launching golf balls at oil spill protesters from his oil rig, and then chasing Ben Affleck around the rig with a shotgun for having set like consensual sex with his adult daughter. Yeah, who she's makes in her, her own... mid to late twenties. Yeah, an Le- adult. She's not in any way incompetent or unable to make her own decisions. She is sound of mind and body. And, oh man, I'm gonna shoot this guy for not raping my daughter. Yeah, and when they call themselves a bunch of daddies later in the film, I think that's Michael Clark Duncan delivers that line, they are still infantilizing her. And oh, yeah. She's one of, like, two significant female characters in the movie, but I use that word significant pretty lightly. A lot of the film, when she's in it, is just reaction shots of her watching the men save the day. Uh, from the like comfort of the NASA space station. Or something having to do with her romantic relationship with Ben <laughs> Affleck. Who, I forgot how good looking he was. Like, I mean, I know he's good looking, and he's still good looking. But like, man, he was like really good looking. He's like square jaw handsome in this movie. He's like a, he's like a cartoon character of like a leading man in here, which is kind of awesome. Um, but yeah, the movie tries to have it both ways, where it both uh, makes a big deal out of this like young couple on the verge of like leading like this... Um, nuclear family life together 
and the conservative dad fantasy of like protecting your daughter from well her virginity belongs to you dude yeah ugh can't let anyone <laughs> else have that <laughs> But yeah, I guess my conflict with this movie and why I find it so interesting is because I am sort of like morally outraged by a lot of it. It is like a gross movie. Um, I think one of the climactic crises is solved when Peter Stramare picks up the other only female in the movie with a speaking role. He physically removes her from trying to like fix a machine in the moment of crisis. He picks her up, throws her against the wall violently, bangs on the machine with a wrench, and yells at it until it works. And that and it, saves the day. It saved it. It worked. <laughs> so, Whoa. He's like, this is how we fix things on the Russian space station. <laughs> so what? Des- <laughs> despite all these, like, sort of, like, rah-rah jingoism and, like, intense macho bullshit, the movie is beautiful to look at. It's It's got the same sort of frenetic editing style as Beyond the Valley of the Dolls or Haosu, each image is like carefully crafted and constructed, but the setups last for about two seconds. Yeah, so many setups. Constant. Constant setups. And this film, I felt like, not only did it take place in a much shorter period of time, but it felt faster, because Deep Impact takes place over the course of almost like two years, from the time that the comet is very first spotted, to the time where it is finally blown up and you know, Earth is partially, partially saved. And this film, you know, maybe there's like 12 weeks or something like that, like some ridiculously short period of time. But the film itself is much longer. It's two hours long. What, Armageddon? Yeah. It's two and a half hours. Two and a half hours long. It's a crazy long film, but it takes place in a shorter period of time and it feels so much faster. Yeah. Deep Impact. I was never bored. At some points. No, like the third act... Yeah, the third act could be a little slow, but they give us plenty of explosions. It's just like, Jesus Christ, how long does it take to just drill a hole in a asteroid? Like, but how guys. how amazing is it that Michael Bay made a movie that's more exciting before they leave the Earth to blow up something? True. Like True. them training, uh, them uh, sort of like blowing off steam. It's gross in like every way possible, but it's dynamically entertaining. Like, yes. I felt assaulted, but like in a great way. Like I felt like I was being beaten over the head with this film. But you I will also... love America and hate this <laughs> asteroid. And the version of America they present is so old-fashioned. Oh it's... yeah, like there's there's white uh, white people live out in the country. Black people live in inner cities. Everybody who lives out in the country has an American flag and a 1940s uh, American-made pickup truck. There's these murals of JFK on the sides of buildings. Yeah, like it's it's like the '60s never happened. Like it, like everything stops there. Mm-hmm. All of the like African Americans they do show like there's like a an old man and like with like a mustache and like a a, a sweater vest over his button down reading a newspaper at a barber shop, <laughs> which you know is a cute picture, but like I, I don't I don't know. Uh, it's the same thing we were saying earlier about how he identifies each country. It's like very it's like cartoonish. It's like yeah. a caricature. Yeah. And then at the but same time, for America, it's very old-fashioned caricatures. Oh yeah, feel like yeah, it does not feel like modern America unless no, you're in the city. Happen. No, yeah. yeah, and even then, like there's still like cartoonish caricatures of very racist events. <laughs> but it's okay. So even the first uh, black character we're talking about um, is a comedian. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's walking his dog, and um, he's got a tiny dog, which is funny because like. <laughs> He's tough and street smart, but his dog's very small. Ooh, contrast. So that's really gross, but watching the dog, 
attack this like pile of Godzilla toys that someone's uh, selling on the street. A Samoan man, I believe. Yeah. Um, Based on the slurs that were then later thrown at him. <laughs> Watching the dog attack these Godzilla toys on the street is so interestingly filmed that I'm just completely ignore how gross the situation is. Like, it's shot from a low angle, so the dog looks like it's kaiju-sized. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's Godzilla-ing he's... <laughs> these Godzillas. <laughs> yeah, and I just find, like, so much, like, small moments of just, like, beautiful art in this gross picture, and I love that. Clash. Yeah, they, they, he changes the white balance uh, to change like the tone of the film at different points. Like when he's in New York City at the very beginning, it's hot and it's summer. Things start exploding very quickly. So everything's kind of got this like warm, kind of sepia tone to it. But then when they're like training at NASA, everything switches to a very harsh blue light. And when they're on the asteroid, obviously it's harsh blue light. <laughs> um, so then, like, I don't know, like they, he, he thinks, he thought about those sorts of things, like color temperature and white you, balance. You get these like, beautiful shots of Liv Tyler in the NASA facility watching everything unfold. And it's shot almost like a giallo picture. Like there's these yeah, really intense greens and reds. And, and, and the shadows that they use, like, because NASA's dark and shadowy, obviously, because they take our taxpayers' money. <laughs> and so, like, there's all these beautiful dark shadows. Her, like, cheekbones are, like, hollowed out. And then, like, she's, like, lit from one side by, like, American flag colors. But if you think about what she's doing in this scene, she's literally just watching and yeah. not doing anything. She's literally just watching. But she, the camera makes it entertaining like it swoops around her and like there's a part where billy bob thornton who plays the main uh nasa guy he like drops his mug in shock at something and watching that mug fall to the ground was more interesting to me than any five minutes of deep impact ouch i don't know that many michael bay movies um i've only really enjoyed like maybe one or two of the bad boys movies or pain and gain, pain and gain is a really fun movie with a black soul kind of like this one but I'm starting to appreciate him as like a, a stylist. Oh, The Rock's a really fun movie as well. But it's the same kind of thing. It's just like macho jingoism shot through this like beautiful lens. It's it's really like challenging to me morally. I mean, I would also say that it was a better script as well. Like despite like all the awful jokes, which could have been written out, somebody could have done like a rewrite on it and like fixed all that. None of that was necessary to the plot. But Deep Impact had so many extraneous plot lines, like the, the mystery at the beginning, and then there was also a lot of redundancies. At one point, Elijah Wood and Lee Sobieski get married so that he can bring her to the shelter because he was one of the people picked to go into the shelters. And her parents and their infant child, Lily Sobieski's sibling, don't get to go on the bus when they're busing everybody to shelter. And so she stays behind, and then he goes to get her and her parents are then cool with being left behind and just give her the baby and are like here well why don't you just take the baby and just go to shelter it's like why didn't you just do that previously why do we have to do this whole second plot for you to come to this like conclusion like again but there's nothing like that in in armageddon it's just we're gonna save the world here we are we're training now we're on this asteroid now we drilled some holes now we're having some like climactic you know conflicts uh, and then we blow it up and uh, save the earth and everything's good. But like, like on paper, it should be the better film. Like if you think about, oh yeah, if you think about like how they treat the smaller comet that hits the ground and like how devastating it is that all these bodies are gone. And then in Michael Bay's movie, three entire cities explode in the yeah. film, and there's just no thoughts given to the casualties. It's just yeah, like so much of Earth is like even if. Even if disaster was averted, like, our population's been decimated. 
despite like the fact that we get to survive like as a whole and basically i feel like those um cities being destroyed which includes paris new york which uh, eddie griffin was the guy with the dog i was trying to think of his name earlier so those two and i believe maybe shanghai was the third one yeah that's right because you got to see all of the poor chinese people who live in like little boats on the water with their little like crab cages and their babies and their babies lots of babies everywhere (laughs) so those three cities all blow up and they're pretty major cities for basically our entertainment it's basically just like tiding us over until bruce willis saves the day because we don't really deal with the ramifications of those cities being wiped out. Yeah. Like, it's literally just like, oh, the the story beats are getting a little one note as we're uh, assembling this team of badasses to blow up this asteroid. Um, here's some, like, candy to keep to tide you over. Watch millions yeah, of people die. Yeah, now Shanghai's gonna explode. <laughs> but yeah, if you look at uh, sort of the more, like, empathetic version of this sort of disaster scenario... In Deep Impact, it's it should be the better film. It's more scientifically accurate. Yeah. Like instead of like just a city blowing up as though somebody set off a bomb, one of the asteroids hits the water and which causes a huge tidal wave, which takes out the entire eastern seaboard for a couple hundred miles, <laughs> like to the Ohio River Valley and to the Tennessee Valley, like just everything on that portion of the country is just wiped out. Yeah, a lot more attention is paid to the way like water would be affected by that. Uh, you can definitely imagine the apoplectic fits of rage uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson would have oh. watching Armageddon oh versus uh, Deep Impact. Deep Impact, he's still <laughs> a lot of grumbling to do. But. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think the way the romance is handled in Deep Impact is a lot better. Yeah. Even though it's like a kind of a weird romance between teenagers. It's, they're literally children still. Like They can't drive yet. They're so young. It's not a big... Like, 14 maybe it's not really a big deal like they, they share like a chaste kiss at the end yeah, they get married so like they kiss then and then like when they reunite they kiss again but if you look to armageddon there's this like a lot of weight is played on the future that's represented between Liv tyler and ben affleck and they try to make it so sexy between the two of them involving uh, we, animal crackers yeah the the big uh seduction scene we see is them lazily hanging out at dusk uh, and he's playing with animal crackers on her belly and sort of like playfully inserting them into her panties and doing like a discovery channel voices yeah he's he's doing the david attenborough like here we have a gazelle on the (laughs) outback eating some grass i choked on my wine during that scene i almost cried laughing because uh, it's punctu- get those crackers off her grassy knoll. That's gross. <laughs> but yeah, it's punctuated with Liv Tyler saying like, "Do you think anyone else in the world is doing this right now?" And Ben Affleck's like, "Well, if if they aren't, I don't know what we're we're saving the world for." Like, I hope so. It's like, like what? I hope nobody else is like sexually playing with animal crackers. I mean, I guess like have your fetishes and all, but like, I didn't think like putting animal crackers in your underwear was like that big a one. But I don't I don't know if a more tasteful Armageddon is what I would want. Seeing what the reality of a tasteful version of this movie is in Deep Impact, I, I think I like the auteurist Michael Bay vision of, of this disaster film. I mean, would Michael Bay be willing to make it if there weren't racist, misogynist jokes? Ah, <laughs> uh, probably not. But I would really like to see that without all of those. Like, could I have gotten him to, like, let me rewrite the script to, like, I don't know... Maybe take out the part where the the African-American nurse is really intent on putting things up the astronauts' butts. 
Yeah, they're getting like trained to go on a spaceship like an astronaut, and their prostate exam basically involves this giant dildo. The astronauts are like, we're just here to drill. And she's like, me too. And like a, you know... <laughs> sassy black voice TM that is extremely <laughs> offensive. Like, what? I don't know anyone who's, like, so intent on putting a steel dildo up somebody's ass to do a prostate exam. That's not how you do it, I'm pretty sure. I'm not a doctor, but, like, the whole scene was just so farcical uh, and so offensive. When Steve Buscemi is getting strapped into the um, spaceship, uh, he thinks that the lady's being a little rough with him, the astronaut woman who's helping him get secure for the flight. And he's saying to her, like, oh, if, if your career as an astronaut doesn't work out, you can always um, get another job as a dominatrix. It's like, cool. <laughs> There's it's good you decided to say that. You could fit all the dialogue from women in Armageddon on a cocktail napkin. Where Easily. In deep... or, or a name tag that a woman would wear as a cashier. Like... Where in Deep Impact, it's a lot more um, even, and it's directed by a woman. We don't go to a strip club in Deep Impact. <laughs> Nor does that strip club end up blowing up. Because of course it does. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm wondering now, like, what would Deep Impact look like if it had Michael Bay's vision as far as, like, not only the way he carefully crafts his shots and the way that it's, like, edited quickly. I'm not sure if that would fit Deep Impact. But even just the uh, special effects focus. Like, there's a lot of blown-up miniatures in Armageddon mixed with kind of early CGI spectacle. It's it's a really, like, great mix of old-world practical effects with what we basically see in our disaster epics now. Um, and I think it still holds up really well. I've seen worse movies in 2016 as far as, like, CGI goes. And Deep Impact could have used some of that. They used... They, like, the, the comet surface itself was very practical effects... But yeah, it was just a boring old hunk of ice. It didn't look with good. With some like geysery bits every time they'd hit something and like some gas would, you know, off gas. Uh, and then when the sun hit it, you know, it started heating up and then it would create the corona, which is the big fiery tail on it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, other than that, there was, I guess, a CGI wave when the tsunami happened. If uh, you compare that wave destroying New York with what the uh, meteor shower destroying New York looks like in Armageddon, it's like not even a fucking contest. No, no, the meteor shower is way more interesting. I could watch that all day. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have any like moral conflict about enjoying Armageddon as? Absolutely. Me too. It's a god awful <laughs> film as far as like morality goes. It's again, I I said this so many times during this. It is racist and misogynist <laughs> and homophobic. It revels in, like, one of the characters being a potential pedophile because he didn't know how old she was. <laughs> it's worth repeating how gross that is. It's so gross. <laughs> a 26-year-old can't have consensual sex with Ben Affleck, and that is a world I don't want to live in. The and... other 26-year-old should be able to have consensual sex with Ben Affleck, you know? <laughs> if she really wanted to. He really wanted to. <laughs> but despite all that, like, you're saying it's god-awful, but I think it might be a god-awful masterpiece. It's It's... A carefully made, beautiful film. It's so fun to drunkenly watch. I mean, if you want to drink a 12-pack of American-made Budweiser (laughs) and watch this, you know, that is your right as an American citizen. This would be a great 4th of July movie now we're talking about. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, Deep Impact, by contrast, I just don't think it's worth, like, bringing back up unless you're contrasting it to... To Armageddon, like I mean, it's a white wine sort of movie. Honestly, <laughs> I would drink it. I would talk about what the end of the world would be like for me. You know how I would uh, deal with that. Would I move further inland in hopes of uh, getting away from the tsunami, knowing that 
might still get wiped out by the other comet. Would I, you know, go the wine and pills route, you know? I'd have more deep thoughts about that one. <laughs> Not as fun, though. So, so we're closing our thoughts on it right now, but our December movie of the month is also a uh, apocalypse-themed film about a nation's grief. This one's set in Toronto. It's called Last Night. That one does the same thing as Deep Impact, where it like, focuses on a wide range of people, but it's a much more interesting film. Like I just don't think there's anything in Deep Impact that probably you can't find done better. I mean, Elijah Wood's in it. Oh, well, there you so, go. Yeah, you want to watch every single Elijah Wood film. You're, you're right. The actors come out well, even though the movie's not yeah, interesting. Yeah, Tia Leone character is very interesting. Uh, her mom's character, who's played by Vanessa Redgrave, is mm-hmm. great. Lily Sobieski is pretty cute. She doesn't have a huge amount of stuff to do, but... Morgan Freeman, like we said. Morgan Freeman is the superior president. <laughs> he keeps giving all these great presidential speeches, which were really good, whereas the president in Armageddon doesn't really have a lot to do or say. Oh, he says, my God, which is, yeah. which is great. I'm yeah. glad they included that. Yeah. It's like, if we're going to not be tasteful, we might as well have a my God take in this film. But yeah, I guess maybe if you want to um, see Deep Impact just to like feel what it's like to have a competent president, maybe that would be a useful thing to return to this film for. Yeah. Because uh, it's, it's comforting, even when Morgan Freeman admits to lying about the world's impending death, he still seems like a, uh, a competent person. And I, I'm like, yeah, I'm glad you withheld that information. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely would have started hoarding things, which you specifically told us we're not allowed to do anymore, so... <laughs> Anything but, else you want to say on the way out? I mean, watch Armageddon, but just know that it is an awful, awful movie. <laughs> but so fun, but awful, but fun. Well, if you're going to watch Armageddon, try to squeeze it in before the year's over, because you might not have a chance to watch anything, because it feels like we are coming to our own Armageddon any day now. <laughs> and assuming that the world will still be here in two or three weeks, we will be back with our... Best of 2016 list. Um, we still have a few more movies to watch, so we're, we're, we're waiting till after the New Year so that we can uh, squeeze in a few more. And I think returning for that episode, uh, we might have James Cone, who used to co-host this very show. Uh, a special guest. <laughs> back on to, uh, to tell us what he's been watching since, since he uh, left us a few months ago. Tune in. Tune in. See you soon. Bye. Bye.